This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. So the topic I'd like to speak about today is um, minimum core obligations of human rights. And the context is I was asked by the World Bank to write a report on this concept. So this talk is based on the first draft. And the important thing for me is that I'm in a position now to get your feedback and you can save me from the errors that no doubt are contained in the current draft Of course, once I submit the final version, I will deny that there are any mistakes whatsoever. So here's your chance to save me from having to defend a lot of errors subsequently. So the notion of minimum core obligations is an idea that has emerged not in relation to human rights generally, but in relation to the subset of human rights known as economic, social, and cultural rights, the rights that are in the um, Convention on on the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. Um, And there are two things to say about this doctrine of minimum core obligations. The first one, that it's not obviously a norm that has legal standing. Um, It's not an explicit treaty norm. It's not clear that it's a customary norm. At most, it is binding on the parties to the covenant if it's a correct interpretation of the covenant. Um, But the main source for thinking about the doctrine is the opinions of the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, but its opinions um, in the form of general comments are not in and of themselves legally binding. They could be um, disputed as to their legal status. So that's the first point. It's at best probably a nascent legal doctrine. The second thing that's worth saying is that it's heavily contested. It's heavily contested both as to what exactly it means and as to whether it's at all a useful doctrine, assuming we know what it means. So that fact means that you can't really articulate this idea without going back to basics, without going back to basics about what international human rights law is for, what gives it its distinctive moral shape as a particular area of law as opposed to some other area of law. And of course, we're all subject to blind spots about that notion. I was at a conference once where someone said, an economist, not a Chicago economist, I hasten to add, but this economist said, well, we know what human rights are about. It's all about supply and demand. Um, The right is the demand and the duty is the supply, right? But if you think about it even for one second, the idea that your right is a function of your expressing demand in the form of some sort of monetary notion that, you know, what you're prepared to pay for It doesn't make much sense. So there are misconceptions about human rights amongst economists. I think there are equally misconceptions about human rights amongst uh, lawyers who naturally adopt an overly legalistic understanding of what human rights are and often don't ask themselves the question, well, human rights law exists for independent reasons. What are these independent reasons? Now, the background view in the report I write is that the independent reasons that international human rights law reflects are reasons given by a morality of human rights. So human rights are first and foremost moral rights. They're moral rights 
that every individual possesses simply in virtue of their humanity. And the way we should think of international human rights law is as that department of international law that tries to give content and effect to these background moral rights insofar as it's appropriate to do so through a specific legal technique, the specific legal technique of according individual legal rights to all human beings. So I think if we have this understanding of the point of international human rights law, this can help us articulate the significance and meaning of particular doctrines such as the minimum court doctrine. So what I'm going to do in the time that I have with you today is address um, four main topics. The first topic is what's the concept of a minimum core obligation? So what are we talking about when we're talking about minimum core obligations? How are minimum core obligations different from other standards of international human rights law? The second topic is, what's the value? Well, I should maybe anticipate a little bit. So when I talk about what the concept of a minimum core obligation is, and we'll spoil a bit the plot nonetheless, the answer I'm going to give is, Minimum core obligations are obligations of immediate effect. So they are that subset of human rights obligations that must be complied with immediately. Compliance cannot be postponed for the medium or long term. And I'm, that's an answer that I'm giving. It's a contested answer. There are under, other understandings of what a minimum core obligation is. I think that is the most perspicuous understanding. So one question is, what's the concept of the minimum core obligation? Second question is, what's the value of having such obligations? What's the value of having the concept of a minimum core obligation? And again, I try to give her an answer to that question in terms of it helps with the question of prioritizing which human rights you're going to fulfill in a context of resource constraints. So it helps with the question of prioritization against the background of resource constraints. That's the value. That's the second question. The third question I'm going to address is, in, my, in kind of a schematic way, which I'm sure will leave you unsatisfied, but we can have a discussion about it, what's the content of the minimum core obligation? So given that we know what minimum core obligations are, my claim is they're the obligations that must be fulfilled immediately, which are the minimum core obligations? Which are the obligations that states must immediately fulfill and cannot postpone for a later time? And I offer some schematic ideas about that. In the final revision, I think what I'm going to do is actually work through an example. There's always interesting political questions about whether you should work through an example. One of the problems is people get distracted by the example, get too obsessed with the specific example you've given, and not with the general framework, which is meant to be the real thing that you're trying to focus on. But I think I will probably, in the revised version, give an example, but I won't here in this paper, but we can talk about it. And then finally, the last thing I'll do is talk about two main objections that people have had to the idea of minimum core obligations understood in the way that I want to understand them. So one objection is, if you try to identify some minimum core obligations all states have to comply with immediately, this is excessively rigid. It doesn't take into account important variations, contextual variations between states. So you're creating a kind of straitjacket. Why would you want to do that? Isn't it better to have a more flexible regime rather than trying to pick out minimum core obligations that apply to all states and sort of steamrolling various differences that matter between them? 
The second objection is, even if the doctrine of minimum core obligations is fine in principle, it's a terrible idea in practice. It creates all sorts of counterproductive effects to embody it in law. It creates perverse incentives for states. So those are the two main objections that I'm going to consider, and they're often heard in this context. So the first question was a question about the concept of a minimum core obligation. And the main source for thinking about what minimum core obligations are is General Comment 3, Paragraph 10. General Comment 3 is on the topic, The Nature of States, Parties, Obligations. So I'm just going to read this out. Um, provides as follows. On the basis of the extensive experience gained by the committee, as well as by the body that preceded it over a period of more than a decade of examining states' parties' reports, the committee is of the view that a minimum core obligation to ensure the satisfaction of, at the very least, minimum essential levels of each of the rights is incumbent upon every state party. So a minimum core obligation to secure the fulfillment of at least minimum essential levels of each of the rights. Thus, for example, and here are some examples, a state party in which any significant number of individuals is deprived of essential foodstuffs, of essential primary health care, of basic shelter and housing, or of the most basic forms of education is prima facie, failing to discharge its obligations under the Charter. Um, if the covenant were to be read in such a way as not to establish such a minimum core obligation, it would be largely deprived of its raison d'etre. Now, what does it mean to say there's a minimum core that, mean, that entails an obligation to fulfill minimum essential levels? How is this minimum essential levels to be understood? Well, in my trawling through the literature on this topic, I identified four things that might be meant by minimum essential levels. So one is the view that I'm going to advance, which is they're those obligations that must be satisfied immediately, that must be um, fulfilled as a matter of immediate effect and cannot be postponed for the medium or long term. Another interpretation says minimum core obligations are those obligations that have a special relationship to some important value. Now, this value might be human dignity, it might be basic human needs, it might be something else. So this way of understanding minimum core is special relationship to an important value. That's what marks them out as different as an important subset of obligations. A third interpretation says that minimum core obligations are non-derogable, i.e. these obligations can never be defeated by any countervailing considerations. The obligation to comply with minimum core obligations is absolute. There's never any justification or excuse for non-compliance. And the fourth interpretation is that minimum core obligations are that subset of human rights obligations that should be justiciable, i.e. that should be enforceable by the right holder either in a domestic court or an international court. So those are the four interpretations in the literature that I think are very salient. Immediacy, connection with a special value, non-derogability, and justiciability. And my claim is the core idea is that of immediacy. So according to the interpretation that I'm putting forward, minimum core obligations are those obligations associated with a given socioeconomic human right that must be immediately 
complied with fully by all states. And so there are three distinguishing features. One, immediacy. They demand immediate compliance, not in the medium term or the long term. They must either now or in the very short term be complied with. Second, completeness. They must be fully complied with at any given time. And third, universality. They bind all states, or if we're being technical, presumably all parties to the convention, irrespective of variations in wealth and other resources. So the way I'm trying to articulate this notion is as follows. If we ask about human rights obligations generally, what's the time frame for complying with these obligations? There are many human rights obligations um, and there are limited resources, so a question might arise, which ones do we prioritize? When do we have to fulfill them by? Now, international law seems to give two different answers to this question, depending on the category of rights that we're talking about. If we're talking about civil and political rights, the answer is these must be complied with immediately. They are obligations of immediate effect. So the covenant on civil and political rights must be immediately complied with by those bound by it. But in the case of civil, uh, economic, social, and cultural rights, that isn't the answer. Because with respect to those rights, there is a general doctrine of progressive realization. And that's set out in Article 2.1 of the Covenant. Each party to the present covenant undertakes to take steps individually and through international assistance and cooperation, especially economic and technical, to the maximum of its available resources with a view to achieving progressively the full realization of the rights recognized in the present covenant by all appropriate means, including particularly the adoption of legislative measures. So the thought is, unlike civil and political rights, economic, cultural, and social rights may be progressively realized over time. Now, the way I'm interpreting the minimum um, core doctrine is, although that's generally true, with respect to the duties or obligations associated with economic and social and cultural rights, that the, the thought is, in principle, you may comply with them in the, long, in the medium to long term through, by means of taking necessary steps via progressive realization. There is a subset of rights, of obligations, to which the progressive realization doctrine does not apply. There's going to be a subset of obligations that must be complied with immediately. Those are the core obligations, and the non-core obligations, by contrast, can be complied with in principle by means of progressive realization. So the minimum core doctrine is to be understood as setting a limit to the operation of the doctrine of progressive realization. That's the function, in a sense, that it performs doctrinally. And I don't think it's an eccentric notion. In fact, in my um, work on this topic, there is a very clear echo of the doctrine in Kant's uh, perpetual peace. So in perpetual peace, Kant draws a distinction between two kinds of obligations of justice, and it's really important, these obligations of justice, not obligations of charity or humanity. Two kinds of obligations of justice, those that have to be immediately complied with and those that must be complied with in due course. And he says, well, of course, when we say in due course, we're not giving states a license just to indefinitely postpone their realization. They've got to be serious about them and take steps. 
but the expectation is that they don't have to immediately comply with these obligations. Um, so when we think about what the value is of such a concept, um, the answer is it addresses a pressing question of prioritization. If there's going to be a recognition of many human rights, each of these individual human rights having potentially multiple obligations associated with them, and then we live in a world where there are resource constraints in complying with these human rights, a question will naturally arise, how do we deal with the competing claims made by these bodies, this, this body of obligations on our limited resources? Now, to give um, an example of how this problem can be thought to be very problematic for human rights, Eric Posner um, puts it like this. He says, the dilemma for human rights enforcers is that they cannot demand that states comply with all rights perfectly. But if they do not, then they have no basis for criticizing a country's decision to allocate more resources to satisfy one rather than another. So Posner's argument seems to be, um, given that there are many human rights obligations, they can't all be fulfilled immediately because of resource constraints. It looks like states can just say, well, we're doing our best. We're prioritizing the right to adequate food. That's why we're not able to provide adequate education, for example. We've made, had to make a decision. Now, it's an assumption of Posner's argument there that international law has nothing to say about the issue of prioritization. And my contention is, in fact, it does have something to say. It might not be a full answer, but part of the answer is to be found in the doctrine of the minimum core. That you can't, for example, um, justify creating um, tertiary institutions or research institutions under the heading of the right to education if it's coming at the expense of the most elementary forms of education for children. Right? That would be a mistaken kind of prioritization. One is an obligation that must be immediately complied with, the other is not. You can't make the one that's a long-term goal um, give that priority over the one that must be immediately complied with. And I won't go into examples, but there are examples in various general comments where it looks like that's the structure that... Um, the committee has in mind when it talks about core, minimum core obligations that although there's progressive realization generally, there's going to be a subset of obligations that must be immediately fulfilled. Now, just to say something briefly about the other <coughs> interpretations that um, I think are not the gist of the minimum core doctrine. One was the idea of special value, that there are minimum core obligations are obligations that have a connection with a special sort of value. Now, there are a number of problems, I think, with this idea. The most important problem, in a way, is it has no real practical significance. It might be an interesting theoretical claim to say there's a certain subset of obligations that have a special connection with human dignity or a special connection with urgent basic needs. That might be an interesting theoretical point, but it doesn't have any obvious normative upshot. The only way it could have a normative upshot if you say something further like this special value is the explanation for why, for example, these are obligations of immediate effect. So now you're relying on my interpretation to give significance to the special value claim. Or this special value explains why these obligations should be justiciable or explains why they're non-derogable. So you'd have to generate that kind of explanation. But merely talking about a connection with a special value 
isn't going to generate anything that has normative rather than theoretical significance. There are other difficulty, difficulties, but I'll move on. The, set, the other interpretation, another interpretation was that minimum core obligations are non-derogable, that they are of absolute force and therefore may never be defeated by any countervailing considerations. Now, my problem with this, I think, is that there are two main difficulties with it. One is that it doesn't really seem to fit the practice, especially of the committee, which has said many things um, which indicate that it thinks that sometimes a state, through extreme circumstances, being an emergency situation, um, wartime, natural disaster, might not be able to comply and would be justified in not complying with minimum core obligations simply because it's unable to do so. So it doesn't seem to be a good fit for the way in which the committee has talked about this. The other thing is, I think, that if you went for the idea that minimum core obligations are non-derogable, then I think you would massively reduce the flexibility of those obligations. Right? You would have to really then focus on obligations that could always be complied with, no matter what the circumstances, rather than having a situation where you would say, there is this obligation, but of course, like many obligations, it can be defeated in extreme circumstances. And again, my difficulty with the justiciability interpretation is that generally when justiciability is mentioned in the practice of the UN Committee, it is as a recommendation. So the thought is it's a kind of a best practice recommendation that if something's a minimum core obligation, you should think as best practice that it's something that ought to be um, justici justiciable, something that's legally enforceable before the courts. But it's, I think, a stretch to go from saying that that is a kind of best practice recommendation to saying it's part of the very meaning of a minimum core obligation that it should be justiciable. Um, that's not, I think, um, what we see when we look at the practice. But the other thing is it's probably not a very attractive idea to build in justiciability to the very idea of minimum core obligations. I think there's good reasons to be flexible about the institutional means through which minimum core obligations are realized. Um, courts is one mechanism, but not necessarily the privileged mechanism for realizing them. And of course, there are many, many concerns that people have about whether, in fact, it's a good idea generally to make um, economic, social, and cultural rights justiciable. So I think it's best to avoid that and have a slimmed-down view the slim-down view says minimum core obligations are obligations of immediate effect. And then it's a further question to be decided on the merits whether any particular minimum core obligation ought to be justiciable. It's also a further question to be decided on the merits whether any particular minimum core obligation ought to be der non-derogable. That's a further question. It doesn't simply follow from the fact that they're minimum core obligations, that they're either appropriately justiciable or non-derogable. Um, so I've addressed the question of the content, of the concept, sorry, of the minimum core obligation, obligations of immediate effect. I've explained the value of having this concept, addresses the issue of prioritization in the context of limited resources, and I have also explained very briefly why I think we should, should sideline the other sorts of interpretations that are present in the literature and in the practice of the UN treaty body. Um, I want to say something briefly about a very difficult topic, um, and that is, what's the content of these obligations? And in the paper, as I said, I'm going to work out an example probably with regard to um, the right not to be hungry. 
But there are three broad points that I make in this, um, the current draft of the report. The first is, in principle, a plurality of types of obligation might form part of the minimum core. So you could have negative obligations to refrain from doing something. You could have positive obligations. That's one example. Another example I want to highlight is the difference between primary and secondary obligations. So there are the immediate obligations that a state has to comply with. But then there might be secondary obligations that arise with respect to other um, agents, other states, international organizations, that have to do with what happens when the state fails to comply with its minimum core obligation. And one important thought in the covenant and in the work of the treaty body is the idea that there may arise an obligation to assist um, a state that is unable, an international obligation to assist a state that is unable to fulfill minimum core obligations. So one thought is we mustn't get um, boxed into thinking there is one type of obligation only under the heading of minimum core. They may be of different sorts. And I give other examples as well, um, but I won't go into them now. The other thing is that minimum core, the second point, minimum core obligations are a subset of human rights obligations and must meet the constraints that apply to human rights obligations. So one constraint is a constraint of scope. You've got to ask yourself what the scope of the right is. So, for example, General Comment 14 on the right to health talks about basic shelter and housing as being part of um, the right to health. That seems to be, to, to be a mistake because shelter and housing come under a different right, the right to an adequate standard of living. So you, health, as I understand it, its scope is limited by medical treatment, by certain public health measures, and by certain social determinants of health. And these other sorts of considerations come under a different right. So one consideration is, do I have the scope right? Am I dealing with the appropriate subject matter that pertains to this particular right? A second consideration, and here some of the moral philosophy becomes relevant, is a consideration that I call feasibility. So all too often when we think about rights, we confuse rights with the interests that underlie them. So we confuse the right to health with the interest in health. But there are many ways in which the interest in health can be furthered without someone having a right to it being furthered in that way. Right? My interest in health could be furthered if I need a, a kidney transplant, otherwise I'll die. My interest in health would be furthered by you giving me your spare healthy kidney. I don't have a right to your spare healthy kidney. Why don't I have a right to your spare healthy kidney? Because it would be excessively onerous to put on you an obligation to give me your spare healthy kidney. So one of the things we have to consider is feasibility and feasibility involves at least two considerations. One, is it possible to do this thing that's being demanded? There can't be an obligation to do the impossible. And second, even if it is possible, would it be excessively burdensome to demand this as a matter of right? To say that as a matter of my interest, it's not too burdensome that you should be under this obligation to provide this service or refrain from doing something. So that's why um, so people like William Easterly, who complain about um, rights as a basis for thinking about health care. Um, he says at one point that um, if you talk about a right to health, this is a claim on funds that has no natural limit since any of us could get healthier with more care. That's mistaken because he's, not, he's talking there about the interest in health. The interest in health has no natural limit. 
but the right to health does have a natural limit. The limit is set by the duties associated with that right. So there are a lot of complicated issues here, but you would have to think about what would be feasible to demand of all states as a matter of immediate obligation, if you're thinking about minimum core right obligations. And the third constraint I talk about is holism. If I'm going to identify minimum core obligations associated with a particular right, they've got to be consistent with minimum core obligations associated with other rights. So in specifying one right, I have to be th- one, ob- one right's obligations, I have to think also about other uh, obligations associated with other rights in the sense that they must, as a general matter, be jointly fulfillable. Right? So I can't make exorbitant demands under the heading of the minimum core obligations of the right to health, which then prevent me from fulfilling any minimum core obligations under the heading of the right to education. Again, if we had time, I would talk about the way in which I think General Comment 14 on the right to health goes <coughs> overboard in presenting as minimum core obligations various forms of entitlements that even the most advanced and richest societies are nowhere near to fulfilling. And yet to present these as immediate obligations applicable universally seems to me to fly in the face of feasibility. Third thing I want to talk about under this question of content is a big dispute that exists in the literature on minimum core obligations. And that is, is the idea of minimum core an invariant standard, the same standard for all states, or is it a variable standard? Does what's required as a matter of immediate obligation vary depending upon how wealthy the state is? And I think if you look at the relevant um, literature, if you look at the relevant practice, both are eligible interpretations. But the interpretation that I, logically eligible, but the interpretation that I prefer is the invariant interpretation. I think when we're talking about minimum core obligations, we're talking about the basic minimum that all states must immediately comply with. Okay, so they're universal and invariant in content. They're not going to vary from one society to another. And I think that for two reasons. First reason is a sort of general logical point. I think human rights obligations don't vary from one country to another. I don't think that, um, for example, the right not to be murdered, for example, is stronger in a rich country than in a poorer country. It is the same right, and the same applies to socioeconomic rights. The same applies to minimum core obligations. It's the same standard throughout. And the second thing is, I think, just as a pragmatic point, it's much easier to apply an invariant standard than to ask for each country one by one, okay, so what are the minimum core obligations in this country versus that country? I think with minimum core, we're dealing with urgent issues, and it's much better to have a simpler rule that applies universally than to have a more sophisticated rule that requires a different answer in different circumstances. So let me end briefly with two major objections. So the one objection follows straightforwardly from what I've just said. I have this invariant interpretation. Some people will say, isn't it ridiculous that you think the minimum core obligations that must be immediately complied with by Switzerland are exactly the same as the minimum core obligations that must be immediately complied with by Mali? Doesn't that just ignore the resource differences between those two countries? Isn't that just crazy? Well, it's not crazy for this reason. Minimum core obligations are addressing the questions, what are the immediate obligations of all states? 
it doesn't follow that Switzerland doesn't immediately have to do more than the minimum core. Right? What's the reason? Well, it depends on the reading of the doctrine of progressive realization. Progressive realization doesn't give you a general license to postpone the fulfillment of non-core obligations. What it says is you may be permitted to postpone the fulfillment of non-core obligations if there are resource constraints preventing their immediate fulfillment. But if we're talking about a very rich country, presumably there won't be these resource constraints. So Switzerland would not be in a position to say we're postponing the fulfillment of these obligations because of resource constraints. So it will on the one hand have to fulfill some obligations at a minimum core because they're universally required as of immediate effect. But it will additionally have to fulfill non-core obligations immediately, not because they're universally required, but because in its circumstances, under the doctrine of progressive realization, it can't justify postponing their fulfillment. Now, having said that, there are four other things I'd want to say about the way in which you can accommodate some variation, even though you've got an invariant standard. So one way you can do that is by what I call contextual relativity. The very same standard may require you to do different things in different states depending upon the circumstances. So what it is to have minimum adequate clothing will vary depending whether you're in the tropics or whether you're in the north of Scotland. It's the same standard, but a different kind of resource will fulfill it in each case. Um, Equally, the right to basic education will have to be provided in some language or other, but the language will vary depending upon the context. So it's not an inflexible standard in the sense that it doesn't take into account any differences in circumstances. What it doesn't take into account is, beyond a certain limit, differences in resources. The second thing is you can characterize the minimum core obligation in an abstract way that allows for some margin of discretion on the part of the state how exactly to fulfill it. So instead of having a minimum core obligation that specifies particular forms of medical treatment, it might give a more abstract characterization of what level of medical treatment must be provided, leaving it to the state in light of its circumstances and the illnesses and diseases that are prevalent in its circumstances to then apply that more abstract formulation in particular ways. So one possibility is discretion. A third way in which flexibility comes into the picture is, of course, on my view, they're not necessarily non-derogable. So then a state might be in extreme circumstances where it says, yes, we are subject to this minimum core obligation, but given our circumstances, given that we're in a war-torn environment, given that we've just suffered this tremendous natural disaster, we cannot comply. And the fourth thing, which might seem puzzling when I talk about invariant, is minimum core obligations can change over time. They can change over time as what's feasible changes over time. So forms of medical treatment that were formerly prohibitively expensive, if they become cheap, suddenly can become part of the minimum core because now it's feasible to say all states are required to provide this level of medical treatment, which formerly was too expensive. So minimum core being invariant does not mean it's static. What it means is when it changes, it changes for all. It doesn't just change for some. So if you have a more expansive set of minimum core obligations, it will be a more expansive set of obligations for all. Now, of course, the more expansive set is the optimistic reading. You could, over time, have a reduced set of minimum core obligations. It might be that 
with the effect of climate change and so forth, our capacity to fulfill various rights dwindles, and they no longer become feasible. And then something that formerly was a minimum core obligation might cease to be. So there is a flexibility built in to the idea, again, temporal flexibility, but it doesn't mean that this will vary from one state to another. Final objection I want to consider is this. Someone might say, this is perfectly fine in theory. Perfectly fine to say there's a subset of obligations called the minimum core obligations that must be immediately fulfilled, unlike others, which may in principle be deferred. And you just take steps to progressively realize. But if you introduce this into law, if you give this the imprimatur of law, it will be counterproductive. It will be counterproductive because it will either be misappropriated or misconstrued by states. And so, for example, in poorer countries, you might get the result that they exclusively focus on minimum core obligations to the ex exclusion of non-core obligations. Non-core obligations come to seem unimportant, marginal, not truly human rights obligations. That could be the effect in poorer countries. In richer countries, you might have the effect that, well, we're already complying with the minimum core, and anything outside the core, well, that's non-core. That can't be very important. Now, the key thing to say in response to that is these are misunderstandings of the doctrine. The doctrine does not say that anything that's non-core is unimportant. All human rights obligations are important because they're human rights obligations. What the doctrine is saying is there is a difference with respect to the timing for realizing these obligations. But nonetheless, I must confess that this idea that the doctrine is counterproductive is not a, an objection that's just to be sort of dismissed. And one way to think about it is like this. The reason we have the doctrine of minimum core, according to my view, is that we have to set a limit to the doctrine of progressive realization. And progressive realization exists because there are always resource implications for fulfilling economic, social, and cultural rights. But now think about this. Clearly, there are also resource implications for civil and political rights. Civil and political rights also often require massive resources. For example, to set up a system of fair trials is hugely expensive. But why isn't there a doctrine of progressive realization for civil and political rights? Why do we say that all these rights, which are also very expensive, must be immediately complied with? Well, one answer might be because of the fear that if you start saying to states, well, you can progressively realize the right not to be tortured, you can progressively realize the right to a fair trial, that they will take advantage of that and won't do all that they otherwise would do. Right? So now the question is, well, if that's a good answer for civil and political rights, why doesn't it also extend to economic, social, and cultural rights? So I don't dismiss this objection. I think it's potentially a very serious objection. What I would say is, something philosophers rarely say, let's look at the empirical evidence. To what extent is this really happening or is this just something we're imagining? Let's think about then ways of educating people, um, generally educating states, educating citizens, educating international officials about what minimum core obligations are. I mean, as I said, there is great confusion in the literature about what this notion is, let alone whether it's at all useful. And the other thing is, Let's think about strategies that can mitigate that counterproductive character, potentially, of having a minimum core doctrine. I mean, it's not as if international law doesn't draw distinctions between types of norms. It, for example, it talks about Jus Kogan's norms, which are peremptory and binding irrespective of consent. 
Um, is it a good argument against that, that, well, if you have use cogens norms, people disregard non-use cogens norms? So it's not as if that sorts of distinction isn't made elsewhere. So I think it's probably not a, a, a debilitating objection to minimum core. One thing I do think about, though, is maybe it's a good reason to start thinking about minimum core with respect to civil and political rights as well, that this might be the first stepping stone vindicating the concept for economic, social, and cultural rights. I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think we have time for a few questions if uh, people have them. In the ensuing silence, I have one. Um, I, I'm curious how it's consistent to define um, to define the minimum core obligations based on what needs to be immediately realized, but then also say that like there are circumstances where they don't need to be immediately realized. Like, doesn't that make those rights in those states that have those debilitating circumstances not minimum core rights anymore? Yeah, I see the point. So you're saying, in a sense, if they're immediate obligations, doesn't that mean like that no they're, they're non-derogable? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think they're two different notions. Yeah, so I think it does make sense to say something like this. When we're talking about states generally, there are some things that they must immediately provide, and it's feasible for them to immediately provide these things, and there are some things that they can provide through a process of progressive realization. Um, so once you have that distinction, then circumstances might arise where in these particular circumstances, the thing that you're immediately supposed to provide, you can no longer provide. Um, and so you say, well, I did have this obligation of immediate effect, but it got defeated. I mean, there was a very good analogy given to me by Richard McAdams, um, who said, you know, parental obligations can be like this. Right? So you, you have obligations as a parent, and there might be some things that you must immediately provide. Um, you must right now provide your child with food, right? They need to eat. Um, and that's, in general, a valid obligation. And then there might be some other obligations that have to be fulfilled over time, you know, um, help them in the formation of their character to be a good, decent citizen and upstanding member of the society or whatever. But there might be circumstances when you can't fulfill your immediate obligation to the child. Say you're really sick and you cannot provide the food on the table right now that you do have an obligation to provide. Right? So it seems to me that in that circumstance, there's nothing incompatible with saying this is an obligation I had to comply with immediately, but unfortunately, given these circumstances, um, I wasn't able to comply with. Um, now, in the case of the individual parent, you might hope that someone is going to come in and say, okay, I can see you can't fulfill your obligation. I'm in, I'm in a position to assist. Equally, in the case of the state, I can see that you're um, suffering from this terrible natural disaster. What would be an obligation that you could normally comply with, you can't comply with? we're going to help you comply with it. But it's a very important point. There is a tendency to think if it's immediate, it's non-derogable, whereas I think you know, there are two separate questions. When do I have to comply? And are there circumstances when, nonetheless, that obligation might be defeated? One's about timing, and one's about whether the obligation can be defeated. So they're conceptually distinct, and they can come apart.
have to look at like which countries or which states have the least amount of resources and not That's determine what is most feasible. So how do you determine what is, if you're talking about a natural disaster or something, some country that suffered from a natural disaster four years ago but still is suffering from that and cannot seem to cover it, is that lack of resources or is that still a Great. Well, that's a really good question, and I haven't got a kind of pat answer to it. In the same way, we think, again, to use Richard's analogy, um, what could we generally expect of parents? So you have, what's the kind of, you have some notional baseline of a parent and their capacities. And you say, well, given this notional baseline of a parent and their capacities, it's not the lowest. I'm not going to go and find, like, the worst imaginable parent and say, right, starting from this worst imaginable case, what obligations? It's not like that. This is kind of baseline. So here's a thought. The thought is roughly like this. If it's really an obligation, it's got to be the sort of thing that in general, the generality of duty bearers must generally be able to comply with. Right? That's the thought. So that's not a thought about let's go to the worst case scenario. It's the general obligation. Same thing applies with the parental obligation. And then, of course, there are going to be some people who are incompetent as parents. Right? And they face special problems, and the rest of us now come under obligations to assist them in some way. And equally, there's going to be failed states. There's going to be states that are subject to terrible disasters where they can't fulfill those obligations. And drawing that line is not going to be straightforward. And the other thing I didn't mention is it's not going to be a line that's going to be drawn purely by moral reasoning. Moral reasoning gives out at a certain point. Beyond that point, there are different ways of drawing the line. If we think it's important to draw the line, some form of social decision, law, or something else will come in and say, this is the minimum that we're setting. Yeah, we could have set it differently, but there is a bound, bounded range of possibilities, and we're going to set it here. And the thought is, in general, states should be able to comply with this as a matter of immediate effect. If it leaves too many states, then it's going to be a useless doctrine. So it's going to be a difficult question to sort of say, where is that baseline? And again, that baseline may shift over time. As climate change starts to operate and diminish capacities of states to do things, maybe minimum core shrinks over time. So it's not set in stone. But excellent question. Well, that is a fantastic question. I mean, you know, Thomas Aquinas would say, yes, right? That um, there's necessity, the necessities, if you like, and then the things that I have beyond necessity. And I can't have things that are beyond necessity if someone else doesn't have their necessities, right? That's a nice, satisfying answer to your question. I'm not sure that I want to buy into it, right? Um, but I think that is something I haven't thought enough about, but it would come under the thought, who is in a position to assist? Now, is the person, the state in a position to assist the state that is itself struggling to meet its minimum core obligations? Presumably not. So in answering the question, who is in a position to assist, who bears the secondary obligation arising from my inability to meet my primary obligation, a key question surely is going to have to be, have they met their, their minimum core obligations? It looks like they're the candidates. But that might be part of the answer, not the full answer. Feasibility of 
sustainability standard through the lens of immediacy? Does, is it just a race to the bottom in line with the question about for the, for the worst parent without some kind of normative like anchor to determine where that line is that we, that we shouldn't go below just because it's, it's if, it, if we go below that line, we have more states who could meet the obligation or more parents who, who, who could meet the obligation. And, and it seems to me in the, in the interpretations that you suggested, like the, the, the value, connections or uh, furthering of value and immediacy are very different kinds of interpretations, right? Immediacy is a kind of one type of feasibility. You could say justiciability is also another kind of feasibility, sure. right? Or if it's not, then you say, why do we think this should be justiciable? We have, have to have a value or a reason rather than it just, it likely is to be justiciable. So how do you, so is, are, is there that difference between the, the, the kind of possible interpretations where the, the, the value of dignity or autonomy, for example, is a real different kind of interpretation and I think would do a better job of getting to what the content should be, whereas immediacy and, fe and feasibility seems like it's, it, it, we are really tied to uh, who can do what and then at that point, if we have a feeling that, that that is a race to the bottom, where do we draw that line without having some normative uh, anger? Great. So I think, and maybe it's a defect in how I present things, I think there is a normative anchor. There's going to be a normative anchor in considerations of dignity and human interests. Now, my problem is I, it would be great if I could, using minimum using this idea of obligations of immediate effect say well if a value such as this one is in play it always generates obligations of immediate effect right so that would be a great thing you'd have the theory that minimum core obligations are obligations of immediate effect and they're anchored in this particular value my problem is i think any value you pick won't do the job so take a value like um life right so your someone's life is is at stake what obligations, if any, emerge from that value? So the answer is it's going to depend on the circumstances and it's going to depend on feasibility. A small child is drowning in a puddle and all that you have to do to save it is get your shoes wet and lift it out of the puddle. Its life is at stake. You have an obligation. Its right to life, on my view, means its interest in being alive puts an obligation on you to get your shoes wet and save it from drowning. Now the child is not drowning in a small pool. He's drowning. He's in treacherous waters. You're a poor swimmer. You could try to save the child, but there's a high probability you will drown because you're a poor swimmer. Do you, same value, life, do you have, does the child have a right that you jump in the water, risk your life to save it? Arguably, it doesn't because it's too onerous to impose that as a duty on you. Um, arguably, if you did it, you'd be a hero. But a hero is someone who acts beyond the call of duty. A hero is not usually someone who's simply doing their duty. It'd be very admirable because you're furthering the child's interest. But unless you're its parent or something, you don't have a duty to risk your life. So this is my difficulty. My difficulty is... Um, there are all these important values, uh, hugely important. Um, romantic love is an important value, but do people have a right to it? Is there an obligation to romantically love someone just because it would further their interest? Although it probably would. So whatever value you pick, there's always going to be the question, right, but what normative implications does it have? And I think there's no easy road from saying, I've got this value, 
and this value can be guaranteed always to generate obligations and always to generate, for example, obligations of immediate effect. All of us sitting here at the University of Chicago, okay. obviously. Because it, it seems dangerous to say that, you know, if it's based on what is immediately necessary, that's going to vary from state to state what the citizens agree is sure. necessary. So people's opinions will vary. Okay, people's opinions will vary. Um, so the question is, people's opinions vary about what flavor ice cream they like. And most of us are not going to launch an inquiry into, yeah, but which is the best flavor of ice cream? Right? You just think it's pointless. You think it's a matter of taste. Now, I don't think that minimum core obligations or human rights obligations are like ice cream. I don't think, well, your opinion about that is just as good as anyone else. I think there's a genuine subject matter that we can debate about. And we can say something like, to general comment 14 on the right to health, wait a second, you're saying that these are obligations of immediate effect, although in fact no country currently is anywhere near meeting them, that looks like a powerful objection to them being obligations of immediate effect, right? Because in order for something to be an obligation, ought implies can, and it looks like this fails to meet that test, right? So I think we can have a genuine dialogue about this, and the point I made Earlier was it's usually there's not going to be a specific point at which you say, okay, pure reason tells me this is where to set the minimum core. But this is true generally. Pure reason doesn't tell me exactly what is a just punishment for murder. It will tell me that writing someone a stern letter would be a very excessively lenient punishment, right? And it might tell me that um, various forms of um, drawing and quartering and so forth would be a barbaric punishments, they're ruled out, but there's going to be a medium range, and within that medium range, we need some institutional mechanism to figure out what we're going to agree to. But I tend to be, because I do believe that there are truths in ethics, I think there are disagreements, but these disagreements are constrained by the possibility of reasoned argument in the way that we're not going to have reasoned argument about ice cream. But I'm open to that possibility as well, I'm just a bit skeptical at the moment. Well, I want to see the transfer first because it seems to me it's a different kind of problem. This is a collective action problem about how to deal with climate change. But my respecting the rights of my own citizens is not a collective action problem regarding what other people are doing, is it? No, just in, in terms of that um, it, it's costly to, to meet these obligations and it's much easier for a developed country to do so. Correct. Um, and it may, it may restrain develop, development uh, by having to provide welfare. Good. So I think at that point you'd have to say, 
well, that is what you're going to be debating in figuring out whether it really is a minimum core obligation. So if it's going to be a minimum core, clearly it's going to be easier for richer countries to meet. But it mustn't be so onerous for poorer countries to meet that it undermines the thought that it's an actual obligation. Right? Remember, if it's minimum core, then it has to be feasible. And again, we're not going to take the worst possible country and ask, is it feasible for that country? But we're going to say, is it generally feasible for states to comply with this sort of obligation? So we've got to identify some kind of baseline. So we have to factor in those things that states need to develop. There are various calls on their resources, of which this is just one. How does this, this holistic point, how is this content going to be fixed given these other circumstances? Right? So you factor in that at that point. And then for me, there's always a second point, which is I might find myself in a country that is a kind of failed state or is subject to special disadvantages, in which case, for some of these obligations at least, I can say they get defeated by my special circumstances. And others have now an obligation to help me out. Thank you very much. Thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.